Hey, Risso here at George Mason University. I'm here with Tori Shiver, Aaron Santeo, Kevin Richards, and Michael Hemphill to do another article club. Uh, this time it's an article by Gloria Ladson Billings. She literally wrote the book and developed the phrase culturally relevant pedagogy. Uh, Ladson Billings published an article late in 2021 in the journal Equity and Excellence in Education. Uh, the title is I'm Here for the Hard Reset post-pandemic pedagogy to preserve our culture. And I'm a sucker for alliteration, so I saw that and I thought that this would be, uh, this would be a great article. Um, so one of my uh, colleagues in math education sent me this, uh, this article, and I was excited to read it because I haven't read an article by Gloria Ladson Billings that was very recent uh, for a while. And, and I, li I like the way that they pose the exit from the pandemic as a time for a reset so speaking from a Virginia context, we're now in a school system as of January of this year where there's literally a hotline for parents to be able to call anonymous tips in about teachers who are teaching about race and ethnicity in ways that parents don't agree or, or they think that it's critical race theory. So there's literally a 1-800 number you can call and leave a message and call out teachers. And I talked to... Um, Steve Silverman, who was my advisor, he's in Florida now. And in Florida, they're about to pass a law that he thinks will actually pass, uh, that many are calling Don't Say Gay Bill, uh, which will force teachers to avoid teaching anything about sexuality or sexual orientation. So um, that's why I love this article, because it, it doubles down on using this time uh, to reset and dig in to ensure the academic cultural and social success for students. I, I thought it was a one very well-written article, and I think that's what's great about Gloria Latson-Billings. Like, she writes in such a way that it's really easy to follow and um, doesn't go super jargony and uses uh, really good examples. So um, I'll, I'll go to you, Kevin, first. What, what was your kind of takeaway from, uh, from the article? Um, yeah, you know, so I think a, a big part of it for me was, was really came on the first page. There, there are two quotes from the same author that I'll read here in a second, back to back, um, th that I really think frame the, what my thinking was going into this article and also, you know, a big takeaway uh, uh, from it for me. So uh, the opening line says, historically pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their, new, their world anew. Uh, this one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. And so I think that that's a really powerful opportunity right there. Like these can be opportunities um, for, 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 for us to rethink our social institutions, for, for us to correct these problems. You know, Lawson talks about how, um, you know, uh, schools in the United States are still built on this industrial age model that, that's inherited from previous generations and doesn't really fit the needs of contemporary learners in contemporary environments. So, you know, pandemics are not great, obviously, like a lot of a lot of very bad things came from this, but sometimes, you know, there's regrowth possible outside of all of that despair. Um, but this is the second part of that quote that I wanted to connect to. So that same author, Roy, um, goes on to say, our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to normality, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge the rupture. But the rupture exists in the midst of this terrible despair it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than a return to normalcy. Um, and I think that that's, that that's really powerful and that frames most of the rest of the article. But what at least the first part of that second quote 
made me think of is, is when we first hit this pandemic and our schools closed and our businesses closed, it, it was like everybody was just focused on getting past and back to normal. Like everything was about returning to normal without anybody thinking about whether or not the institutions that in some ways put us in this position in the first place were good or, or whether or not they needed to be thought, uh, rethought. You know, why, why is it that, that, that in the United States, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, supposedly, our response to a pandemic is to get people back out working where they're vulnerable and could contact disease as fast as possible. If we're the richest nation in the world, like we think we are, then how is that even possible that that's our response? But, but that was what we did as a country because we pushed back to normal, pushed back to what pre-pandemic looked like and didn't really stop to think about what post-pandemic should look like. Yeah. Aaron, Tori? So, Risto, I'm going to have to agree with you for um, a second because, you know, I haven't read Gloria Laxon Billings in a while. And um, I have to say that she is one of the people that have really, that really is um, inspired me during graduate school. So I hadn't really been exposed to her work much before heading to the University of Texas. And I had the opportunity um, to work with um, Dr. Kefferlin Brown, who's at the University um, of Texas and studied under Gloria Laston Billings. So it was really an amazing opportunity to get to know some of the work that um, she had done. Uh, and I really just love this article. I think that, you know, her writing style just really hits home for me and it's really relatable. And um, so if you haven't had a chance to read it, I would encourage you to, to pick up this article. But for me, you know, I really just appreciated her, the concept of the reset I think is really important and it's really hard to do though. Like the, the actuality in the, in the, the way as you're you're talking about Virginia and other parts of the United States, like it actually happening, unfortunately, is is really hard, right? In in the climate that we're in today. But you know, she goes, she digs back into the elements of culturally relevant pedagogy, and she stays true to kind of her original um, writings and kind of taking us back to to those tenets of her original framework. And I really appreciate that because. I do think that those three tenets of academic achievement and student learning, cultural competence, and then the social, political, or critical consciousness are so important in what we're doing and kind of like resetting ourselves. You know, there's there's all kinds of new language and new terminology and all of that is great, um, in especially in trying to be in an inclusive environment. But when, But for me, I think that these three tenets like really hit home for me and trying to think about that and not only what what's going on in the K through 12 schools, but what we're doing, you know, in, in heat and heat pedagogy, I think that it's really important. So um, I think that that was my big takeaway is just kind of like regrounding myself in those things that um, taught me to be on the path that I'm on in the first place was, was really great to read. Michael. Um. So yeah, great article. I like the, I know there's a lot of literature on CRP and there's like her, uh, there's a page and a half just distillation of CRP that's really good and helpful. And if people haven't had a chance to read in this area, it's just a great starting point. Because I know sometimes you can pick up a journal article or a book and it can feel overwhelming. And that's one of the things she does well is just define it there. 
Um, I like, because Rista, you started talking about these issues with uh, the school boards or laws against critical race theory, and um, she really put the issue of disparities up front. Um, I think that's really important when we think about the reset, and one of the things that she I highlighted, she said, um, in school districts serving black students who are socioeconomically disadvantaged, it is the school that exacerbates the educational disadvantages. These schools suspend, expel, retain, assign to special education, and deny interest to gifted and talented and AP courses for black students. And so in the face of this kind of movement against, uh, whatever it's against, against kind of teaching um, racial racialized history, uh, that type of con confrontation with the data of inequality, I think is really important in a reset. And then I want to think about like, what does that actually mean for physical education? Um, and I, I think we do have a, a role to play in those, those issues that she mentioned um, that are leading to disparity. Tori? You know, it's, my thought processes are so similar to everything that's already been said. So to keep it brief, I think that she provided an excellent background of the history that has led us to this point, as well as the model itself, as Michael said, um, in a way that's digestible, not you know purely theoretical. There's very specific examples provided as well, um, you know. And I think that it's it's almost a positive take on where we're at now, where so often we're talking about the incredible challenges we're facing, and it is a big challenge, and it's not anything one person can take on. But it's her saying, but this is possible if we take this approach. So it, to me, I left feeling almost optimistic in that, all right, I have a idea of a game plan. I have categories where I can jump in and hopefully take something on and talk with those around me and see what they're doing. And I don't feel like I'd have so often reading the news or, or closing articles as of late where I'm just like, you know, nothing's really changing. We're just circling and circling and circling. This was one where I left thinking, okay, maybe something can be done. And here's a step or two to get us in the right direction. Yeah, and and trying to bridge Tori and Michael, your your comments there. I think you know, Michael, you talked about how uh, it just like the school is the place that these actions are happening, right? But she also talked about how it distills down to the teacher, and it's the teacher who is writing that suspension. It's the teacher who is overlooking a talented t student to not put them in. Uh, gifted and talented or push them towards AP courses or they are recommending the suspension. So it, it's, it's not it is the school level, but the school itself is not making those decisions. It's a lot oftentimes it starts from or, you know, stems from the, from the teacher making that. So in, in my opinion, like I look at peat education being so much more important, right? Because it's our job to teach students who are coming in to, you know, enact CRP, to understand their biases, to understand how they might be overlooking certain students or focusing their attention towards students. Because at the end of the day, a lot of those teachers are making those decisions. Or if they are, you know, they don't manage the classroom very well, they get upset or frustrated and then they send the student out of their classroom into administrative offices, administration makes that decision to suspend or in-school suspension or whatever that is. 
Kevin, you were nodding your head and then shaking your head at the same time. So I'm, I'm curious <laughs> yeah, yeah, to hear yeah. your opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that uh, I, I think that, that that's everything you said is true, uh, but I think it's only half the story. Uh, I, I think that one of the, the challenges that we have as teacher educators is that we're working that there, there are other systems outside of teacher education that affect our work. And sometimes we don't have a whole lot of control over those systems. Like we don't necessarily have a lot of control over the types of students that come into our physical education programs and their values and beliefs relative to physical education. Those are, you know, socialization challenges and things that they pick up during their own physical education experiences as kids. And then on the back end, um, we can have the, the, the best, most culturally responsive, uh, prepared teachers, but if they get placed in environments that aren't conducive to doing that work and that put up active barriers to, to, to um, reducing suspensions among black students and creating more equitable environments, then what's going to happen? They're going to they're burn out. They're going to strategically comply. You're going to see washout. I mean, it's the same story that we see through the socialization literature over and over again. So, so the challenge then is how do we how do we affect change in a way that goes beyond individual systems and targets multiple elements of this multi-system constellation at the same time? So, how do we affect both teacher education and recruitment and in in the culture of schools and doctoral education and the political landscape? How do we how do we connect with and affect multiple levels of this system? Because if we only target one then we might have some impact, but that impact is likely going to be washed out by other elements of the system. You should look in the occupational socialization theory. I think it would explain a lot of what you were talking about. I heard that's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, I think to add to that, Kevin, like the other side of that is like the principles, right? And the um, how principles are indoctrinated into the system and, you know, sometimes or a lot of times they're coming up through the ranks, but then in their graduate education, like what does that look like? Like what are their leadership courses look like and how are they being socialized, right? And I think that that leadership, you know, we see this in other areas when we talk about physical education or physical activity, that principal support is really important. And I would say in this realm, it's like even more important, right? So in current work that we're working on um, with Native Hawaiians, we look at trying to integrate culturally responsive pedagogy um, ar around Native Hawaiians in the school setting. And what we're finding is that those principles that are embracing Na'apena'a'o, which is a framework here in Hawaii within education that specifically looks at integrating Hawaiian into the schools, principles that embrace that and build it into their culture their teachers are more culturally responsive, right? But um, those principles that might just support like the poster hanging or support the professional development, you're not gonna see those long-term changes. And so how do we impact the principles, you know? And, and Aaron, just real quickly to fire back on that, um, we're seeing that, we're seeing a very similar message in some of the work that we're doing right now, looking at how principles are socialized and how their socialization connects with their support for physical education in a broader sense, principals set the tone for the culture in their school. So if, if the principal doesn't believe that physical education is important, then that's going to be implicitly and explicitly translated to other members of the school community who are going to act accordingly. Yeah, and, and I did like that um, 
Lass and Billings did actually write the words physical education in, in the article. Um, it was nice to, nice to see that uh, kind of explanation of when we and if we are able to reset the, the school system where that physical education and physical activity and arts can play a more uh, centralized role because they have been pushed out of the normal system for for so long and that this hard reset, whatever it becomes of a new style of education or using asynchronous, synchronous learning to support and then coming in, um, you could, or that she talked about um, standardized testing and how some of that standardized testing could be removed and made more uh, made more time for um, art, physical education, physical activity in the um, in the school system. So, other other thoughts, Michael, Tori. All right. So, I, one thing I thought about is like a hard reset. Uh, what what would that look like for PE? And so, first, I feel like ever since I got into this field. Uh, it, we've been looking for a hard reset. Like, I feel like every shape conference I've been to is all about how do we get a hard reset in PE. And every keynote from, you know, Kathy Ennis or uh, leading scholars has been about that because there's always been a disconnect between um, what we aspire to and what we see across the board in schools. I know there's some amazing PE programs, but I don't think we have systematically seen um, the standard of excellence in physical education across the board. Um, and one thing I thought if we had a hard reset was we would really think about decoupling um, secondary school athletics from physical education um, so that we could focus on excellent pedagogy for, for all students. Um, and we've seen how that's just difficult to do uh, in, in the current context. Um, so I wonder if anybody has thoughts if we got a, if we really get got a hard reset for PE, what would I mean? What would we reset? What would that look like? So I I had that same question of what it what it would look like, and I kind of wrote down which could be a controversial answer, uh, but I think it's embracing hybrid learning, especially at the secondary level, just being able to use that hybrid learning for the cognitive aspect, because a lot of time when we go into secondary uh, secondary schools, whether it's middle school or high school, you know, there are some good teachers out there that do a lot of cognitive content. But I think one of the benefits of doing online learning was they had a lot more to offer, like health education or cognitive concepts of, of health and physical activity. So I think that having that be available and and Lats and Billings talked about this, too, in the general education format of there were students during the pandemic that had more success because they were able to watch videos over and over and over again, or they were able to watch shorter pieces of videos and go back to them to, to review the material or say they had ADHD, they could take a break when they needed to instead of being stuck in that uh, formal classroom environment where they would possibly become disruptive to other people. And so, um, and again, it's, it's not going to work for everybody. And that's why I think the hybrid learning is there, like um, having teachers upload videos of skills so students can work on those, having them uh, do content about the cognitive and the affective and the social emotional learning can be taught 
um, outside of class time and reinforced when you're coming in and doing that physical activity. So that's, that's what I think, ne not necessarily the hardest reset because we've already started moving towards there, but I think that would be an improvement. I think I'll uh, talk on that really quickly in that each of the categories, I was trying to think about how that would be placed uh, within physical education. So she provided things like technology, curriculum, pedagogy, assessment. So I was like, okay, what's that look like? What does that look like in our realm? Um, so things like cooperative learning, small group activities, we're already doing a lot of that. So I was like, awesome. We have one category that's being hit in some ways, but other areas, not so much like for example, assessment, you know, I talk a lot about assessment tools that can be utilized both formally and informally with my students that are, you know, more inclusive or, um, you know, still meet the standards, but also make sure you're meeting social emotional learning concepts that go beyond that, that sort of thing. And I can talk about that a lot while I'm training the teachers that I'm working with, but then once they go out into the schools, it's a completely different expectation in terms of assessment. And that circles right back into, you know, what Aaron was saying with the principal expectation, what Kevin's saying in terms of socialization and what they're entering into their settings with. Um, so while I want that hard reset, I want them to, you know, maybe alter the standards for what's expected and what we're assessing for. Um, it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing. Cause I, I get this idea that it's a, that's where we make the change, but I can't do it with my peace students. Cause then they go into the schools where the schools are telling them not to do it. And then, you know, if there's a teacher that's doing it, I'm working with a couple teachers right now where I'm almost feeling like I should stop encouraging them to keep going because they're they're facing so much struggle every single day that they're starting to hate their jobs and having a lot of resentment towards it. So why I want to change all of these things and I have a firm belief in a reset, I have no idea where to even start with these ideas. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that, and that was one of the conversations we had as um, at our last kind of uh, department meeting of where are like, how are we allowed to teach in the current environment in our state, right? And the teachers we're talking about. So our school of education has gone through like a five-year process of reestablishing all of their classes to be focused on social justice and equity. And so all of the undergraduate like teacher training has been working towards those goals as a foundation of the classes not just like you take one class but it's embedded in all of these classes and now like the state has put up you know like barriers of saying you cannot teach this stuff so the teacher educators are sitting there going what what do i ethically teach we've worked to teach social justice and equity principles in our courses but they are not allowed to teach that in K to 12 programs. So you can't, you can't tell a teacher and say, just fly under the radar. Don't tell anybody, but still teach this because you're setting them up for losing their job in their first year. But like ethically, you also think like, this is what you should be teaching. These are the topics that you should be teaching. So. You know, I, I teach a sociocultural class this semester, and we talk about all of all of the content about diversity and sociocultural issues and physical education. But I also have to have this conversation of saying, when you go into schools, these are right now in this political environment. It's these are things that you might not be able to talk about, and that's really challenging, because 
I'm not going to tell my students to talk about this stuff and get fired. But also, like, they should be talking about this stuff. I think, as everybody has said, the reset is just really hard and thinking about it from a physical education lens, like, what does that look like? I mean, for me, it's really a bigger system because I think that, like, physical education, as has been alluded to in this article, but as we know in the literature, is not valued, right? And so, for me, the like, a reset includes helping people value what physical education is and what it brings to the table, right? Um, but obviously, like, that's a big change because there is so many people out there that don't value what it brings to the table. So how do we change that mindset? And it's not something that you can just snap your fingers and do, right? Um, I mean, she talked about in the article how there are places in history where people reset their, like, you know, countries or whatever, reset their educational system. And we just haven't seen that um, in the United States and where we have seen it, it has not been for the better. Um, so for example, here in Hawaii, like there was a reset of educational system from the, um, you know, from Hawaii when it was its own nation to the formal westernized um, education system. And that wasn't necessarily viewed positively right but as a whole as the united states we really haven't seen that that reset ever um and it's just a hard thing to tackle so then my brain goes to so then how do we make how do we make meaningful change in the structure that we're in um and it's just a hard it's a hard concept to kind of tackle yeah and i think the the good examples that she put in there was the end of world war ii she talked about how Japan had to make drastic changes that led to more gender equity, allowing uh, girls into the schooling system more generally. And in Italy, they talked about the Reggio Emilia schools that, you know, in, in my community, there are Reggio Emilia style schools that um, teach about discovery and exploration instead of following directions and like doing, doing it from not following directions, but coming from like an authoritative point of view, you're looking at more exploration. And the example that she used in the US that because at the end of World War II, we didn't have to necessarily make an ideological huge change. She talked about um, Hurricane Katrina that changed the school systems in New Orleans. And like she said, that the change that was implemented was actually a change to more charter schools and the firing of African-American black educators and taking the public school system and putting it into these charter schools for a large portion. And, I, and she, puts a link, she put a link in there to the organization and I, I looked over the website for a little while and you know, these are things that, again, I had no idea. I had no idea that those kind of structural resets were done in, in certain places, but I think it's, it's going to be tough because there are so many schools that are already back to normal, right? After post pandemic, they're just doing the same thing that they've been doing and then might just add like a little bit more technology, but I don't think there has been a structural reset in 
because there's no like there's no end to this pandemic that we've been going through for two years it's not like it just ended one day because certain places have gone back to normal and there's no difference in schooling from two years ago and certain places are are very not normal yeah i think i've got a lot of thoughts swirling around in my head right now and i'm going to try to make it coherent but 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 i think that it's bigger than the conversations that we're having right now we're talking at the school level i think this is a social level change i think that it's i think it's critiquing things and that underlie what it means to be american um like capitalism like american individualism over social responsibility it's about critiquing these underlying beliefs that, that make up our culture and thinking about them and then thinking about their manifestation. Because what we see in schools is a manifestation of capitalism. It's a manifestation of American individualism. Um, and uh, Michael, when we, were in, when we were in grad school, you'll probably remember we read um, Robert Piercig's uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And on my wall, I have this poster. And it says, but to tear down a factory or revolt against the government or to avoid the repair of a motorcycle uh, is, at a, is, to, is a system and to, atta- and to attack effects rather than, to co- rather than causes. And as long as the attack is upon effects only, no change is possible. So I would say what we see is these manifestations of schools, those are effects. Those aren't causes. The causes underlie them. And if you remember also, Michael, we did that project with Jilton Damata where we looked at the, the, the radical democratization of, of, of education in post-military or Brazil. Um, and that took the downfall of a government. It took burning education to, to nothing and then rebuilding it out of ash. And, and so until we really think about like these core under, until we're willing to have conversations at, at the level of, uh, of, um, uh, uh, of causes, rather than at the level of effects. I don't know how we move the needle forward. Well, I'll add this. Um, one of the things that we, you know, the comment today about um, book vans or whatever, uh, you know, they came through approaching local school boards uh, in these fiery protests. And the lesson in that is that school boards are approachable. Um, and more than we probably realize, and we really have, I'm not aware of any conversation on utilizing local school boards um, as a lever to promote quality physical education, uh, to address some of the equity issues. I'm sure that work is out there somewhere. It it hasn't been um, prominently discussed in physical education. So I I was able to, um, in part because of that, I mean, I contacted our school board chair and met with her for an hour. And we're a top 50 school district. And so school in terms of student enrollment. So these people are really approachable. And one of the things that I'm learning is they do not want, school board members don't want to be shouted down about highly politicized issues. That's the last thing they want to do. Um, usually these issues that they're getting shout, shouted down about are not popular. I mean, they poll at like 80% unpopular. Most people do want us to teach history and things like that. But those people don't show up to the meetings, to the public comment period. And so there's some opportunities for uh, action-oriented community organizing to look at how can we use this body to promote positive change in uh, certainly education broadly, but physical education uh, even specifically. And just, you know, I don't know if we've taken a swing at that yet. Uh, we, we focus a lot on national-level policy, but, I, you know, I don't see – 
big changes coming from Congress for, for what the challenges we face. It might be a more local um, movement to where we see some examples of success that we can then build from. I think that I agree with that, Michael, and I think that I've seen that in action in some ways. So, for example, we're working with a full school district to implement social emotional learning amongst all physical educators, K through 12. And in many ways, that's been successful. It's been, you know, more like professional development and one-on-one conversations with teachers across the board. All the teachers are saying they're interested. The school district itself and those in higher administration are really supportive. Um, the main challenge now has been time and basically the expectation to completely relearn or to learn a bunch of new things to then implement in the classroom and the expectations the teachers are having um, to successfully do all of these things. So I, I think about it almost as if we're trying to fit, you know, everything that we're teaching our undergrads in a couple of years into these teachers' everyday lives while also having the expectation that they successfully work with their students. Um, I think that the, the COVID-19 flip for a lot of them was overwhelming and then transitioning out of that has also been overwhelming. But at the same time, throughout that, we have learned so much that we want our teachers to do better. Um, and we want better for our students as well. And so we're saying teachers do this, teachers do this, add this, here's another new way to do it, let's try that. And so many teachers I've talked to are just like, we don't even, we can't do all of this. We're just, you know, one person or a small group of people. So. I would 100% agree with that. I just don't know where the healthy balance is, where we pick and choose what we go forward with and what we ask of our teachers because they're they're already doing so much and feeling the pressure in so many different ways, admin, parents, students, and they're having a difficult time answering to, to everybody. So, I think one of the one of the interesting points that I found in the in the CR the article was that she kind of critiqued some some teachers who are saying that they're teaching culturally responsive pedagogy or some people that say that this is being enacted but it's not fully enacted that you know they're using the cultural competence piece as just putting up some pictures on the wall like you talked about Aaron uh, earlier and I thought I thought that was interesting of kind of explaining that that like the cultural competence is being fluent or fluid in a second culture and that the um, the the white population is not precluded from that and that the second culture that that you know let's say it's some some student from another country that comes in they are being fluent or they're learning about the culture that, that the school is about, like the community that they're going into and vice versa for, for students learning about another, another community. And I think that the, the social political consciousness piece comes in. I think that's hard. I think that's hard for, for teachers to do. I, I think it's important to do, but with current restrictions, I think it's, it's hard for them to really go through it. And I, and again, the time we have to teach teachers, like that's why I think master's degrees are so important for for people to continue their learning. It's a structured way to continue their learning. I mean, at the end of the day, we have two years and probably like four or five pedagogy courses in most universities that are teaching health and PE teachers. For them at an undergraduate level to understand culturally responsive pedagogy and be able to teach it 
so well. I, I think that's, I'm not saying it's a lot to ask. It's just that the students have so much other content that they're learning. And I think that the continuing develop, like professional development is where that stuff really starts to click. Um, but I think the, you know, the alternative licensure that she talked about as well is, is, is troubling because the schools that need it the most are having underqualified or unqualified teachers teaching in those communities. Um, so other um, kind of last thoughts or final points or things that we haven't um, covered yet about the article? I was just going to add one thing to what you were um, saying, Risto. So one of the things that I appreciated that I haven't really seen written in her work before was her addition of this concept of youth culture. I mean, so she talked a lot about, you know, um, integrating culture into the classroom and getting to your, know your students, which, you know, is, is really important. And she talked about how that surface level concept of cultural competence isn't good and how it really starts with knowing yourself and knowing the biases that you have and your culture and then getting to know the older cultures. And one of the cultures that she talks about is this concept of youth culture. And I think that sometimes like we as educators or teachers that are out in the schools, like we talk to our students about getting to know youth, right? But this concept of youth culture, I think is a really important one because these youth have been raised in a different culture than even we have than we were, you know, 20 years ago. And um, there's there's a lot of teachers in the schools that are, you know, have been in the schools for a long time, and that concept of youth culture changes. And so, what is more acceptable now, and what has been at the forefront now, is very different than what it was even 10 years ago, right? And so, I think that concept of youth culture is also really important in this conversation. Um, as we move forward, because I think that that definition is a little bit more fluid and it's probably changed a lot over the years. Yeah, good, good point. Tori, Michael, Kevin. Just, um, it, you see, talk about, uh, I think it's parent and community engagement, uh, as like a centerpiece of learning and, um, mentioned that in a reset environment, like learning might happen across different contexts and even different times. I think she said for some students, instruction may have to occur in evenings or weekends, you know. Uh, so it's just talking about like a radical rethinking of things. And um, I was thinking about in my district, uh, we lost, so we don't, we no longer have a yellow bus service for high school students uh, because of the various issues with, um, COVID and supply chains and so forth. And so, you know, you're in a situation where you can't deliver high school students to school. Uh, and um, one of the things our superintendent said about it was that, you know, while she's disappointed that it needs to be an opportunity to think about the yellow bus system overall, um, because like, so a student in a big metropolitan area has a city bus system and so they can get to an internship, they can get to their sporting events, they can do these after school programs that are not available to our students. Um, and so when she said that, that was like an example of reset thinking that helped me a lot because I was just thinking about the tragedy of not having the yellow bus to get these students to school during the traditional hours. Whereas she was looking ahead and thinking about um, all that we're losing in that old system 
you know, that, I, that I'm so concerned about. So just continuing to think about how do we develop that lens and um, action toward, you know, a more inclusive and opportunistic school system, uh, it, it was something I, I think I needed after two years of this pandemic. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering the that part that you talked about of uh, parent and family engagement. I wasn't I wasn't 100 percent clear on what she was asking for. Was um, was she asking for parents to be able to teach or what was like, are the parents responsible for teaching that? Yeah, so I think she's thinking about the way uh, the way kids, uh, students interact with schools now and technology and all the things you might consider as a learning resource, like their Wi-Fi and that parents really have to be engaged in different ways to help partner with teachers to ensure student learning. Um, so that's one space. And then the other space is, I think, with like cultural relevance um, kind of implies engaging communities and um, people who have knowledge assets from the, the cultural resources that could be more, uh, that can kind of negotiate learning experiences with the school. So I think there, um, it was a brief section, so I think it does beg elaboration and more conversation. Um, but I think those are the types of things she's alluding to. I think just going off of, you know, everything that's been said throughout and going off of what Aaron and Michael said as well, this is a team approach. Uh, I think it becomes intimidating when you start to think about it as, you know, I, I do all the time, you know, what can I do? How can I change this? I can't realistically do it independently. It's everybody having to work together. So when, you know, she points out that we need to have parent involvement, community engagement, we need to make sure our teachers are connecting with our students, parents, uh, administrators, local transportation systems. Like there's so many people that are involved or at play to make this successful. So starting to think more along the lines of, I can't do this, but if I work with so-so and so, I can maybe actually make this different. Um, education is collaborative. So we can't put all the blame on teachers, can't put all the blame on parents or all the blame on students. We have to work together. Um, I guess the last thing that I would say is that if you haven't, if you haven't read it, uh, I would highly recommend reading Piercig, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It, I read it in grad school and it, and it changed the way that I think about social institutions. It changed the way that I think about um, you know, life really in, in a lot of broad strokes ways. Um, and I saw some, some real dovetails with the article that we talked about today. So uh, uh, I guess that would be my final piece. All right. Uh, so I guess, uh, I guess we'll cut it there. Uh, thanks everybody for, uh, for coming on and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll be back again next month with uh, another article. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Joseph. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree 
revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.